0: and welcome to a living my youth. My name is Noel Fogelman. My guest this week is actor Reed Diamond. I've been doing this for over three years now, 150 episodes in. This one was one of my all time favorites. Reed, best known for portraying detective Mike Kellerman on Homicide Life in the Streets. Talk about that show, talk about David Simon. on a ton of television, Designated Survivor, Franklin and Bash, 24, Dollhouse, to name a few journeyman we talked about that show which i loved such a nice guy i spoke to him from canada he's living in toronto now hope you enjoy the conversation thank you for, for doing this appreciate yep. it of course yeah, yeah. How, how's uh, how's everything up there it's crazy yeah it's yeah. crazy
1: right now um uh where are you right now
0: i'm in connecticut Oh, next nice. where? Uh Trumbull. It's in uh, Fairfield County. Okay, cool. Yeah, and um I I'm originally from Queens. So I I right. travel to uh the city every day, but thankfully wouldn't working from home and uh which has been great. <laughs> what do you do in the city? Um I work for Yahoo. Yahoo oh, Finance. Right. right. Yeah. right. So it's it's been great that actually because I have been in the TV business for over 20 years and always had a you know commute and work in places, but then we able to do everything remotely now and right. able to remotely log into my you know stuff in the studio. It's right. fantastic, you know, because I've always had over hour commutes, you know, the train driving through different states. Now I get up my bed, walk over to my desk, I'm there. Right. You
1: know. <laughs> this may be the new normal, right?
0: Exactly. You know, I don't have to worry about getting dressed. You know, my kids are here, wife, everything. It's, it's yeah, fantastic.
1: exactly. Yeah. How old are kids.
0: Uh, 15, 10, and nine months. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So th- that was planned. I, I always uh, tell people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's been great you know, just to, uh, hang out with them and see him grow and stuff like that. And, you know, it's, it's been great. That's awesome. But, they're going a little crazy, of course. You know, they, they just announced today that uh, Connecticut schools are closed for the rest of the year. I think they were, like, the last state to do right. that. Right. You know, my wife teaches, so she's been doing all the stuff from home as well. So it's a little hectic, but it's good that we're home. You know. What 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 age is she teaching? Kindergarten. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's good and bad. You know, she doesn't on a normal day, she doesn't bring too much work home with her, which is great. Right. right. But she deals – like, she jokes, she deals with, like, 20, you know, five-year-olds all day, she gets home, she deals with, you know, the three kids and me, you know, so. <laughs> exactly. She says I'm her fourth child,
1: so. <laughs> no, I mean, it's funny, because there's been so much of it that's been great, yeah. you know, and uh luckily we all get along well. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, my daughter's in school right now, but she's. Oh. She's at the, you know, she's in fifth grade, right? And, um, but I'm thinking if you had a, I mean, if a kindergartner or some, I mean, obviously nine months is really young and your 10 and 15 yeah. year old are in, they're in great shape, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's funny because my 15 year old, you'd figure he'd be the one, you know, and see to get out of the house and do things. He sits on his couch, plays video games, does whatever. It's right. my daughter, you know, the, the 10 year old who really wants to get out and, you know, do things. But we'll see. We'll see what happens, you know. Hopefully, uh, I'll start to, you know, lack some restrictions, you know, what, wh- wh- you know, hopefully it will be safe, you know, we're not, You know, cause some places wanted to flip the switch and yeah, go exactly. back, which, which you really can't do. But uh, yeah. So uh,
1: how'd you end up in Toronto? My wife is from here. Oh, okay and, uh, I mean, she grew up in the States and then moved here as a, as a teenager. Right. And so she's got dual citizenship. And oh. then, um, and we've been living, we've been living in the country. We've been living, uh, about two hours north of Los Angeles out, out in the wine country outside of Santa Barbara for about seven years. And we wanted, I grew up in Manhattan right. and I wanted to give, we wanted to give our daughter a little city life, but I didn't want to go back to New York and there was no way we were going to Los Angeles again. I'd done my, we'd done enough time there. I mean, I, a lot, a lot of time. Yeah, and, yeah. and then Tor- I love Toronto. Uh, it's a, it's, it's a doable New York. Right. In a exactly. way, right. And it's, it's Canada. So it's, it's 15% nicer. <laughs> 15% more filet. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. I went up to school and college in Buffalo. So we would oh, always okay. go up to Toronto and, you know, especially right. the dream, We were just 19 there. So right. The exactly. Falls. And I was there with my son a couple of years ago. We did a little, a little bit of a hockey trip. So we would hit, hit Buffalo, hit Toronto and did a couple of games. Hall so of Fame.
1: came up here in Toronto.
0: Yeah, Toronto went to the uh how much did you pay for your tickets? Oh my god. We um we were in the three hundred levels, but it was like center ice. But for what we paid, I think it was like okay, my wife can't hear me. Uh about three hundred about three hundred a ticket.
1: It's crazy.
0: No, and then this we this night before we were in Buffalo, second row,
1: a hundred dollars apiece. No, know, cuz I grew up, you know, I I used to go to the Rangers at right. the park, right? And I remember you get you get tickets for 12 bucks, right? Yeah. Right. You know, but we also remember, you know, you go to or you go to Shea Stadium and you sit up there and you get tickets for 9 bucks or whatever like that, right? right. But uh, yeah. so I'm doing a show here Doing designated survivor here, and, I'm, and so this is, this is right during the last election, so it's 2016, and I go, oh, I really want to go see a hockey game. I want to go see the Leafs, and and so I called my friends, and and I said, who lived here? I go, hey, I'm going to take you to the Leafs game. They're like, I don't know if you are going to be taking us to the Leafs game. I, I am. Don't worry about it. So I call the cheapest seats, the worst are 90 bucks each. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's not worth it. I know. It, but, you know, so – but now, you know, so, I mean, I, I I just have to cozy up to some lawyers or yeah, some people yeah. who've got a nice corporate account, and then right. I can go watch with them. Yeah, yeah. You, you should have hit up Kiefer. I'm sure he has some connections, right? I didn't. You know, I don't want to be in his bed. <laughs> I know. Right. <laughs> it,
0: it was funny because I, I used to work for ESPN, and um this was – I think it was 2003 we did the Stanley Cup finals. Right. And that was think, the year that Kiefer, like, narrated the – uh the teases and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, he came into the truck, and it was just like, oh my god, because I, I mean, twenty-four, you know, halftime show. Yeah, which, yeah, You know, just, just seeing him and then uh, meeting, of all people, Bill Goldberg, the wrestler. Right, Goldberg. Yeah. Uh, we were during the game. We ran over just, to, you know, catch over the game. So we go pick up a hot dog. All of a sudden, I turn around. He's standing right behind me on line waiting for a hot dog. It's like you don't start this, you know, freaking Bill Goldberg, who's right. Or a football player, you just you right. was like, hey, you know what, what's going nice. on? He's like, how you doing? You know, it's <laughs> like That's okay, so cool. yeah, it was really cool. But yeah, you mentioned seats are just just ridiculous. You know, I grew up an AL fan, and you know, right. obviously cheap Rangers, and yeah. just going with time was you know twelve fifteen bucks, right? You know, especially with like student ID discounts and, and stuff like that. But it's just like, and they're getting a new arena, so I'm sure the tickets are going to be you know through the roof in a couple of years again. But nothing
1: quite like Toronto. Yeah. No, I mean, I guess they're, I guess they're the most expensive ticket in the NHL. Yeah, they have to be. Yeah. Right, right, right. Which makes sense. But I just thought, I just thought it'd be more egalitarian because it's fun. Like, I've gone to, uh, I've gone to, um, uh, Jay's game here and it's completely different. Watching a baseball game up here is a whole nother world because everyone sits down the whole time. Yeah. And they're very polite. Of course. It's un- It's yeah, great. Exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah. Right. Yeah. Cause we, we used to make trips up there to see the Yankees. And we always used to joke that if you sit, in, you know, the first base side, you can have a conversation with someone on the third base side because it was so quiet. Right. It was.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Exactly. That's brilliant. Yeah. And yeah, I, was, you know, for years, I've been going to Dodgers games, not to see the Dodgers, but going to see, you know, going to see the Mets when they would come or going to see whoever my friends were because no one's from L.A. But yeah. it was always it was always really intense because you were always going to get into a fight because okay. or a fight was about to happen. Right. Because, yeah. you know, no one is from L.A. And then the people who are just it was it was not. The, so I, I didn't enjoy going to baseball games and then for a long time and then going here was great. So now I'll definitely take my daughter to a Jays game. Yeah,
0: exactly. And everyone's yeah. nice be there. It's great. I yeah, exactly. Know any of that stuff. Yeah. But being a Met fan, I'm sure you love City Field. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, I, well, no. like,
1: I mean, I don't I haven't been. Oh, you haven't been yet. Oh, OK. I haven't been, I haven't been since Shea. Oh, OK. Yeah,
0: that, no, that, no, no, no
1: yeah
0: yeah it's just, it is beautiful. It's like that even be, being a Yankee fan, I love that place more than the Yankee
1: stadium. It's just like a regular baseball park you and know that's, and that's what's great with the new ones yeah but that you know they they tried to it started to feel more intimate when they came up with all the new ones in the nineties and you started to be able to like it was pleasant, and you could get a decent beer, but still, like my favorite is to go to like single a and yeah. And I was just, we were just, I was just shooting down in Winston-Salem. We were shooting in the ballpark and we got, they gave us the ballpark this summer. And, and then you go, you know, it's $12 for a ticket. Yeah. And then it's $6 for a giant local beer. So you get a a good beer at a good price and then you can actually see the game. You can see what everyone's doing. You can get into it. It's just, it's a much more enjoyable way
0: to watch baseball. Right, there was like an independent league uh, team in Bridgeport, Connecticut, which is like ten minutes from our house. Right, right to the minor league hockey team, which we have season tickets for, and we would always go to the you know baseball. Like you said, it was for a family of four. You can go, spend, people right. bucks everything. They have inflatables yeah. for like my daughter to do. you know. But unfortunately, that team moved to North Carolina. Right. Now it's good. And we, for what we spent for that day, you can you can't
1: pay for parking in Yankee City. Yeah, so, but know, it's like, the same thing that can, you know. In my business, it's like, you know, when someone wants to go see a musical on Broadway. Right, of course. I go, yeah, I mean, for 300 bucks a ticket or more. Yeah. right. What's going to happen? Something's got, you know, there's no way you, you can't, you, you either have to pretend you enjoy it or, <laughs> or, or or you know, it just has to be life changing. Right.
0: But it's going to be interesting to see what happens post all of this. Yeah. Whether, uh, how many people, are they going to put like every other seat? Especially in Broadway, because I think everyone's so packed in. Like, I don't know, understand what, what they're going to do. It's really, really
1: a shame. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the, the the hope is that, you know, we can, everyone can get their test and their antibody test, and then we'll know. And Then you just go in. Because the social distancing thing isn't going to, I mean, they were saying on the planes, it doesn't matter, right? If you keep that middle seat free, because it's still the guy behind you. And, you know, oh, sports, that's right. Yeah, yeah
0: exactly. And the forts, you can you know, play sports in front of an empty field, mm-hmm. alongside. on right. TV they're not going to perform a Broadway for an empty you know theater no you yeah. know so uh, i wonder if they're going to do
1: like live streams of those and i mean who who knows what, what what they can do i mean it's i know i mean for me obviously like i don't want to really watch anyone's zoom show right now right it's, you know and uh but there's something there's going to be there's going to be something for a while where we film from home i don't know right i don't know it, yeah. It was funny
0: because when they did that concert a couple of weeks ago and everyone was saying, Oh, this is our generation this generation's live aid. And I laughed. I'm like, nothing was like live aid. No, no nothing was like live aid. Yeah. It's like, I watched on. every second of that thing live. It, it was like brilliant. I, I interviewed uh, a couple weeks ago, a backup singer for David Bowie who was on right. stage with right. him. And what she was saying just looking at, you know, Wembley Stadium with 70,000 people. It was just like unbelievable. And you watch the Bohemian Rhapsody. That was the best part of the movie. It was a live aid performance.
1: Right, of course. Yeah, you
0: know, seeing that, and it's just like nothing is going to top that. You can say, oh, this was uh, this generation
1: live aid. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, you can't. even. Well, also because because it's hard to it's it's hard to you know what do they call it Gen explain um, right. what what it was like. You know, we didn't have you didn't have you didn't have the internet. So to see all those bands, see everyone together. Yeah. And you had to you know, had to watch it live, right? Exactly. And it was so. I mean, I watched every second of. It. And then you know, Phil Collins gets on the Concord, and right, exactly, right. And you're seeing all these bands that you love, and it, I mean, every band you love. But then bands were getting back together to play it, and it was just my first professional gig, my first commercial that I ever did premiered right. during Live Aid. Oh wow. Which is great because I was taping Live Aid, of course, on VHS, like, you know, whenever the super long speed is. So that's how I had it. I had my first commercial on tape because I was taping Live
0: Aid. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. A couple years ago, they released, like, a box set of, like, the performance. So I was like, I got to buy that. And now it's, like, out of print. But it's just, like, just having that. No, Of course, with YouTube, you can watch anything. That's one of the beauties of it. But it's just, like,
1: just that that day was phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. And, yeah. It's amazing to watch now, like, you know, cause I'll see, obviously, like, also the, my favorite, that U2 set was insane. Right. And, and then you just go, but it was, it was so low-fi, right? It was still, like, people were just, it, this it was just great bands playing. Yep. Yeah. And great performances. you know, you're talking about, like, Freddie Mercury, where it's just, where it's just the power of his, his, his talent and his just being, it was, yeah. was able to reach that many people. And, and, uh, and yeah, see, I mean, all the greats. I mean, didn't, because the three surviving Led Zeppelin guys all got together, they played, right? And they—I'm trying yeah. to remember—like who were the people that I was so excited about on the right. day? Yeah, the Who, right? Yeah, and then like Bowie, and I, yeah.
0: I think Paul McCartney, right, to perform. Yeah, they
1: premiered the "Dancing in the Streets" video, right? And all the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so here exactly. we are living our youth. Yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Now speaking of your youth, like. Growing up in New York, like was that like what Broadway was that what your main goal was growing up, being an actor. We're we're doing the show now, aren't we? Well, I'm going to include what we just talked about too. Oh, that's great. Okay,
1: cool. So, but so now we're just okay. Great. great. Um, We've been walking on for a while now. (laughs) This is awesome. This is fantastic. All right, it was just it was such a polite and and wonderful conversation. Um, No, so you know, um, so my dad directed. Dukes grew up. How old? How old are you? I'm 45. Okay, right. Just a little younger. You're younger than me. Do you remember the Joe Franklin show? Oh, of course, Channel 9. I mean. Channel 9, right. So my dad worked at Channel 9. Oh, okay. At WOR. He was a director there. So okay. he directed the Joe Franklin show. Oh, okay. And that's also that's the, probably the number one reason I was a Mets fan is because they covered the Mets. Course, so right. I could go to Shea Stadium, and I remember going to those day games in yeah. the early 70s where there would be there, – there wouldn't even be a 1,000 people there. Right? You could just sit anywhere you wanted, right? And the only time people come, so I remember, um, coming to see Hank Aaron hit. And, you know, that was the only time it'd be crowded when there was some, somebody exciting from out of town, right? <laughs> but, so my dad directed the Joe Franklin show and the Joe Franklin show was, it's great now because with YouTube, cause I'd be able to go back and watch some of those old ones cause they weren't, you know, and seeing what most people are probably familiar with the parodies of him, <laughs> Billy Crystal doing it and, and even like some of the, SCTV stuff like the Sammy Maudlin stuff has that element of where every. but what Joe Franklin had this amazing uh, gift of making everyone seem like a star so you could have a star you could have Bing Crosby in the chair and next to him you'd have like Danny Trevino from Bayside who was playing in some sort of bar band and they were all on equal stature right and uh, and it was just a love fest but so Joe got tickets to all of the Broadway shows. Okay. And if it wasn't for Joe, I I probably wouldn't have seen anything, but he would give my dad, we'd get comps to all the shows. So we got to see, uh, we got to see so many plays and and musicals. And that's definitely, that's definitely where I knew I wanted to do it. I remember the first, the first musical I remember seeing that I just fell in love with. I was probably seven and I went to see Pippin. Okay. No cast of Pippin. And then, um, and, but then the, the, the show that I saw that changed my life where I knew for sure it's what I wanted to do was I got to go see Sweeney Todd. Oh, okay. Yeah. On, and which was, and I was really lucky because I got to go twice. I got to see both the, the, not to both the original cast, but I got to see both, you know, Angela Lansbury and Lynn Carreau and then see Dorothy Loudon and George Hearn do it. But I just remember just that magical feeling of, of being in the theater and, and, uh, what they'd done is they ha- they didn't have the curtain across. You know, usually when you go into the theater, the curtain's across you don't know what's going to happen. And it was open on this bare stage with this incredible sort of ironwork, this industrial revolution, you know, 18th, 19th century London. And then the, the the steam whistle blows and the show starts and it was just so magical. So uh, yes, Broadway uh, was my that that's definitely was my first love what made me want to be an actor right and obviously your father and your mother approved right you of your Yeah I was very lucky I d- you know I grew up I grew up in this I grew up in this building on the upper west side where my dad still lives on 93rd street and uh, we were uh, we were referred to as the bohemian floor uh, <laughs> cause my father was uh, by the landlord because my father was a television director uh, our next door neighbor was Malachi McCourt I don't know if you know Malachi but his um brother's Frank McCourt who wrote Angela's Ashes and then in the, in the third apartment was uh, Stanley, a uh, hairdresser from up the street. So we were the bohemian floor. Right, right. And there, but there were a lot of, um, there were a, a few, uh, people in, in the theater business in our, in our building. But yeah, my parents, when I said I was going to be an actor, it didn't seem like a ridiculous uh, life choice. I right. think my mother had come to New York to be an actress. And, uh, and I think my father had always wanted to be an actor. And he sort of, since he stopped being a director, he's had a second life as a cabaret singer. So he's always he's performing shows at don't tell mama once a year. And he just, in fact, he just won uh, Best Male Vocalist at the Manhattan Cabaret Awards this year. So it wasn't it wasn't an outrageous proposition.
0: Right. Oh, great. Yeah. 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 How how long did your father like direct Joe Franklin show?
1: He directed forever. So he was Joe. So I, I think my dad probably started at the station in the late 60s. OK. And uh and he directed the news at noon and he directed Bowling for Dollars and yeah. and the Catholic mass once a week. And then he al- always directed the Joe Franklin show. And he was Joe's director for as long as I remember. So from the early 70s until Joe went off the air sometime, I guess, in the mid 90s or early 90s. Right. So did he hate the move to Secaucus? He hated the move to Secaucus. Look at you. You know. Yeah. So you're. Yeah. Because what was so. The old, do you, do you remember, do you know where the old WR station was? Yeah, I used to work down the
0: block at uh, MLB network, which was the old like Janeway factory. So yeah. Oh, but I, I'm, I'm saying,
1: do you know where, where, where they used to be in the city in Manhattan? Oh, no. no, not the oh, so, no. so the, the old WR was right there at Times Square. It was right at 42nd and Broadway. Okay. And, and it was, you know, so my entire childhood, you know, you take, I take this train and you come up at the 42nd Street station and it was 42nd Street of, the 1970s so it's all porno and kung fu and wow. right the, the entire all of and, and then and it was this, this little rinky dink building and they had one the, you go up into the building and on the third floor was the was the studio and all the sets for all the shows were just against the walls and they just moved the cameras around it was yeah. it was like basically a 1950s television studio cool. so obviously secaucus was definitely a move up probably technologically but charm wise, it, it, felt, you know, it was, it's much more mad men in the old yeah. studio. Yeah.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh I, I, I hated that Drive to the Caucus. <laughs> get it. it was just the worst. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. Exactly. Just, you know, something
1: about being in the city just is, you know, the charm of it, you know. And I think, you know, I think my dad ended up, I think he ended up, I think it did break him because I, he lost all of his shows by, I, he had a, he had a very bad habit of telling his bosses, um, that they didn't know what they were talking about. And right. so it, it it so he a lot of his shows went away except for Joe because Joe Joe said, you know, Bob will always be my director. And uh so my dad's time at the station was done when uh Joe's show ended. And then he went went to work at the Met at the Metropolitan Opera for, okay. for years nice. too. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah and I- yeah, yeah, I mean, usually
0: the higher ups don't know what's talking about, but yeah, yeah, usually a fucking idiot. Usually, yeah, it's
1: not, it's not a, great, it's not a great plan. Uh, no, no, no. Um, you know, uh, and definitely, you know, something I've been able to learn from.
0: Right. No, of course. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's good that he was, you know, and it's part of the business, so you can actually. Pick but no, brain he was up. masterful
1: because it was. I, I used to love. There was nothing sexier than watching him work because it was live. Except, for, well, I mean, they would shoot Joe as if it was live, but he shot a lot of live television. Right. So I remember, you know, you go into the control room and uh, and he was the boss, and it was everything was analog. He'd have a stopwatch in his hand, right. and yeah. he'd be timing, he'd be camera two, camera, you know, and 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 watching him conduct that live television. And I just remember he just. It was it was like being at Mission Control, right? It was like watching some the space program, and I just always remember being in awe of him, and everyone sort of looked up to him, and and he was the master of that domain. So it was a very exciting place to be. And then you know because I was the director's son, I got to sit in the control room, and, and it was all very exciting. There just be different phones, and the producers would be on the phones, and you know guys, you know running. So it was it was uh, it was an exciting time. He had he had his own little headset, which seemed very magical, and it was probably all like World War II surplus right you know nothing nothing not no, no computers nothing like that right and uh but uh it was a magical it was a magical time to be alive and i feel you know you, you know the show's like reliving my youth and i feel like we got to live in this really interesting time this sort of crossroads this analog digital crossroads time which was i mean i remember being a kid there were still subways from the 40s with the wicker seats right on some lines on the east side on, on yeah, and you and, and then and then you know but then you still had all of the modern things that were coming in you had you know your video games but you still had an analog and a digital world and so even you know, with music too you know we grew up with where everyone had to get together in a room and record and right, right. and then we saw it all change to where you could now we can all record our album from our houses separately yeah right yeah.
0: Exactly. have you done any like like anime, like voiceover work, like you know, cartoons or any animation.
1: I have, yeah. I mean, I used, I've done a bunch of cartoons and I've done a lot of voiceover work. Okay. So i that you, yeah. you could just. Yes. Yeah. No, it's ben, great. And, and- I'm doing a, do oh. a lot of stuff from home. Yeah. So, and yeah. that's probably. That may be the only uh, income coming in for the next few months. Yeah. No. Which that's got to be rough. I'm sure. It's strange. I mean, I mean, obviously, my hope for this time is that we come out better, right? That's there, cause there's certain things that I think have to change, but it's, uh, I mean, what's, well, it's also interesting because you always sort of fantasize about living in interesting times. Yeah, and, exactly. and then to actually find yourself in interesting times, you kind of get to see what you're made of and, and you can think about and talk about who you are, but you get to see who you really are. Right, and, right. Um, you know, cause I always, and then, and then it, as an actor, I find it really fascinating too, because I think you tend to romanticize past dramatic periods in history where you go, okay, World War II, everyone came together, right? They must have all come together. Right. And then you realize, oh no, probably a lot of people didn't come together. Probably a lot of people are going, how can I make money off of this World War II thing? And how can I, you know, take advantage of this time? So, as a as a as a student of human behavior i find it really fascinating to see i mean obviously we have when a bizarre political time but i but not necessarily unprecedented oh. um so uh so it's a dual it's a dual edged sword so it's it's exciting and interesting to live in interesting times but it's also fucking terrifying <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you're probably in that regard happier in canada <laughs> Well, it's been, it's interesting. You know, like I say, uh, the Canadians, I think it's just 15% nicer. But I mean, it's how long we've been in this for six, seven weeks, right? And, uh, and you can already feel people going, all right, enough. I can't take it anymore. And I'm, I'm, I'm checking out, you know, the right here, the thing that's really interesting in Toronto is there's this, been this rash of stunt driving. And you hear them all night. So people just like ripping up their little their little souped up Hondas and just going 200 kilometers an hour down the highway. And uh, in fact, the, the Ontario Provincial Police, the, our, the state troopers here, have been posting their, you know, the um, the radar gun readings, and they're all over like 200 clicks an hour, and, or you know 200 mile, you know 200 clicks, yeah, 200 clicks an hour. And uh, and uh, and you hear them all night. They, they keep us up. But uh, so that's... That's interesting, but then I've seen, see, you know, people are, it'll be interesting to see, you know, uh, how much more we can take. I mean, financially, it's a, it's, I think it's, I don't want to get political, but it's like, uh, it's bringing in a sort of stark relief, um, the inequalities. Yeah, no, current, right. You know, and also, also, as my wife points out, we, we don't make anything anymore, right? So we, you know, so now you're seeing all oh, those supply lines are a little, um, they're tenuous. And we can make gloves. Let's make some gloves. Let's make some masks. And uh, so uh, hopefully, hopefully, I mean, I I am, you know, I'm optimistic that we'll come out better and we'll, we'll think about this differently and how, you know, maybe reinvigorate the middle class and have um, jobs here where we actually aren't just all in the service industry. Right.
0: Right. It's true. But it's like when you like, bail out all these companies like say boeing which get like 60 billion dollars for what to make you know inefficient planes again for them to crash right. where you have like healthcare like healthcare workers and even like daycare workers like setting people back to work well yeah Who's gonna want, you know they're not getting nearly enough money for a bailout and what's going to happen you have a lot of these like you know daycares closing right. and like, you know like now our town's like Education budget is getting slashed. It's like, who's who's going to end up watching and caring for the kids? You know that that's going to really be the problem. I think going forward here.
1: Well, hundred percent. I mean, that's and that's what's that's what's most terrifying, and that's why because. We seem to be well. Did you? There was a, some great video that just one made, you know, the the, the the English guy reading the bedtime story to his kid about how everything had gone crazy and now hopefully we're all going to come out all better. But it's just, you know, all corporations just giving themselves bonuses and re, you know, buying buying back their own stock, and right. you know, companies don't make anything, right? And that's where all the money is. You know, the richest people in the world just know how to move money around, and. Right. Um, and then the people who we should most be taking care of. I mean, there was you had a paramedic in Brooklyn. I was watching him on the news the other night, and he doesn't have—he doesn't have health coverage, right? No, that's—I mean, it, it makes you sometimes want to rip your face off because it seems inconceivable, right? And yes. Yes, daycare workers and teachers and those people all seem they seem pretty important. It seems important that hospital workers, but you know hospitals, you know you've got hospitals that are just on a profit. You know, um, they their model is to make a profit, and so they can't take care of their workers because they're not doing enough facelifts these week, you know, these last few weeks, right? So yeah. it's. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I saw
0: a stat that we're the only, or the U.S. is the only country that has anyone who has lost health, healthcare insurance during this pandemic. Every other country, not one person. Right. And it's like unbelievable. It's supposed to be, you know, the best country in the world, leading the, leading the world and everything. Well, it is leading the world in that stat, unfortunately, but a country's supposed to look up to the U.S.
1: That's what a, you know, the whole fairy tale is supposed to be like. That's it. I mean, it's, it's, you said it perfectly. I mean, I feel like, um, you know, America for a while has been coasting on this myth of it being exceptional, right? And, and as an American, uh, you want to believe that you want to believe, but I mean, it's certainly been very difficult the last four years to believe that. Of course. Yeah. It's been complicated. And, yeah. but in a moment like this where you feel like, yes, they should be, we should be leading, America should be leading the world in all of this. And, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, we, we've pulled back the curtain. Yeah. It, and the great powerful Oz is, uh,
0: yeah. It, you know, it's funny because like when, you know, obviously the election happened, you know, right. 2016, you would think that both sides would kind of, this would be a wake up call. It's like, oh shit, we got to get our act together. Yeah. So forward to now you have Trump versus a 77 year old Biden who probably should have ran 2016 and would have won, but <laughs> You know, this is what you get, two old white men.
1: You know, it's it's, it's comical. It really is. And, you know, here we are are at the beginning of May, and we don't know what the the rest of this month's going to look like, let alone what the next six months are going to look like. Hopefully there will be an election. Right. I mean,
0: Mm -hmm. you would think that there would be kind of mail-in, because a lot of the primaries now we're doing mail-in voting. Right. And that seemed to be going well. But you can't do a presidential election by mail. I don't, I don't understand. You probably can and be fine, but you know, hell, you can vote for American Idol by phone and text. Why can't you, you know, do the same thing for the
1: most important election of your country? But as we've learned, as 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 you know, Republicans cut on tape saying, if everyone votes, it doesn't go well for the Republican Party, right? So yeah, exactly. We don't want people. We don't want people oh, voting. Want you know.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's why I'll never make it like, you know, a national holiday. Like everyone's off.
1: That's it's, it's, it's exactly, it should be 100% it should be a national holiday. I mean, and you know, it's, but it's not. It's designed that no, you're going to, if you live in an urban area and perhaps, you know, if you live in an urban area, you're more inclined to vote for one party over the other. And no, you're going to wait in a six hour line and you don't get off from work. Right. Yeah. How are you going to do that? Interesting. Right. And if yeah, Uh oh. I mean, that's, <laughs> and that's why like, Obviously you and I share a lot of, uh, the same, uh, views on the world. I mean, that's why my Pollyanna side hopes that yes, we see how out of balance things are and yeah. we, we write the, we write that, but I, uh, I want to be optimistic. I'm not overly. I, I know. Yeah. Cause
0: you, you find like every like disaster, whether it was 9 11, people come together, right. but then, you know, obviously not for a while. You know, it, the same thing happened. You know, and I think the whole like collapse of the financial system that also kind of like didn't bring anybody together.
1: But you it should have been a wake up call, and it really wasn't. It wasn't. I mean, I always okay. Well, now now we're in here, so let's get yeah. man. So like after 2007, when I mean that was that was the big wake up call because when I didn't see heads on pikes and people got you know when people when they didn't storm. The Bastille and, and, and people got their, their bonuses, got their, you know, year end bonuses. Then you're like, Oh, we're fucked. And, you know, you brought, you know, you brought a bunch of the foxes back into the hen house to rearrange the system. Um, and now, and now it's just gotten, I mean, what's interesting too. I mean, the, I think the most dangerous part for me of this isolation was that I find myself more and more plugged in online. Right. Yeah. Because you don't really have that outlet. And, you know, if I get in, you know, the 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 craziest thing that's happened to us in the last few years is this. We're all on social media and you're in that crazy echo chamber that is just formulated. It's yeah. It's formulated to get your blood boiling and uh, and, uh, you know, you're here, you know, just to incense you. I mean, I think that's that that is the point. Right. That is what the algorithm is set there to do, just like your nightly news right. or. Or your, your particular brand of news is there to get you going, right? Just like, oh, you know, and, uh, get you all ginned up and, and ready to fight. So, I mean, it's, it's been a challenge to maintain equilibrium and also feel like you can contribute in some way. I mean, I think that's, um, uh, that's, that's definitely what I want to focus on for going forward in the next few months. Like, how can I contribute to making things better? instead of just being outraged right yeah. and um, and I don't quite know what that is yet um, uh and you know certainly how can I contribute to my community here um, you know once again I, I had the back in the uh in the 90s when I first moved to Los Angeles I uh, I was going to quit acting and become a cop OK, because I uh, uh, it was a crazy time in Los Angeles. I'd moved there and the, the, after Rodney King and then the riots. And and it just felt like the world was falling apart. And I was like, oh, I'm this, I'm this guy who puts on makeup and plays dress up. and I, I should really I should give back. And then I had a bunch of friends who were cops and they took me on a ride along. I went on this ride along down in Watts and and all the cops I met all wanted to be actors. And, and then I go, oh, you know, I'm really an, I'm an actor. I can probably contribute more that way. Uh, and so that and then, and you know, a year later, I, I got homicide and I felt like, oh, I have something to say. Right. But yeah, yeah. but but recently I just read about another actor who at my age had tried to join the I guess he tried to join the LAPD. And I was like, oh, gosh, what if my if my Canadian papers come through? Could I join the Toro- Toronto Police Department? Because, you know, that's that's how I feel like I could give back. I don't know if they want an old guy like me, but uh I would, uh, you know, some some way of being part of the real world. Yeah, I guess it would be like recruiting, like,
0: you know, process, like the whole thing would say Captain America when he like was the recruiting process for the right. army, yet he was a super soldier. But like that could have been like you. Hey, I'm an actor. I was on homicide. You know, I did this. I played, you know, nine million cops joined the Canadian, you know, or the Toronto police force, you know, or the LAPD. Right. I guess that that could have been like your slant to it, but not that not what you wanted to do. You wanted to be riding a patrol car, right? You know, cuffing people.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to make the world safe for old ladies and kids. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Right, but now, um,
0: I, oh, sorry, go ahead. i, I want to say you, you mentioned homicide, which was obviously a fantastic show, and you got to play a yeah. cop for a, a bunch of years. Now it was a David Simon show, with creator of The Wire. Now, when when yeah. they cre- came, The Wire came out. Did you ever th- thought, thought about kind of talking to David about being on that show, or I that, that kind of been like, oh, you know, I was already in Baltimore. Yeah, I can't really be, do Baltimore again.
1: <laughs> you know, had they, had they called, I certainly would have done it. But I mean, The Wire, you know, The Wire is definitely, I think The Wire is my favorite TV show yeah. of the last 20 years. Right. And what I loved about it, cause with Homicide, obviously when we did Homicide, it, it was this, this hybrid time before Netflix or HBO existed, right? So you didn't have, so networks were still making, um, Trying to make the best shows possible, so there were great dramas. And I feel like the last, I will, you know, and you feel free to disagree with me, but I always feel like the last great network drama was *West Wing*. Okay. And then that, and then after that, suddenly you could just go to HBO, you go to AMC, you go to Netflix. But so with *Homicide*, we were able to do everything except just those things you couldn't do on network television. So we were able to tell the story. We just couldn't use the vernacular per se and there were just some gratuitous things we couldn't so you know uh, but i uh, so what i love about the wire is that just it was it was homicide without any shackles right and and also yeah. dominic west did a fucking killer baltimore accent which great. yeah which was not allowed when we did the show cuz i remember melissa leo was going to do a baltimore accent which is the craziest accent. You know, they all sound like this, "Yo, come on, hon, you know, going to bomber." And and I was just down there, which is crazy too, I'll tell you this story, but um but they wouldn't let her do it cuz it just sounds it almost sounds put on. But he did it and it was flawless. And then they had what I love in The Wire too is um you've got a lot of the real guys from Simon's book. Or a lot of the real cops played smaller parts. Yeah on the show. And it's just so great to see, you know, cause we had a few of them who would come on our show. And, uh, so the wire was excited for me because I was, you know, I was a fan of homicide, but I was such a fan of David's book and just reading it. I still, anytime, anytime since then that I've gone and played a cop, I always reread that book before I start. Cause it's just a grounding, uh, Clark Johnson, you know, played my partner, Meldrick, and then has gone on to be a great director who I've worked with many times. He and I always talked about that because what was so great about that book was on bad cop shows, it's always very serious, everything is very earnest. And, 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 and the real guys are like, it's always, it's all, the most serious things are said in the most profane, usually involving some sort of sodomy type joke, right? And, you know, so, and, uh, and that it's just a great way to communicate. And it's also, it's, it's a truism about how people, I think, usually under great duress who are seeing very intense, horrible things cho- choose to deal with it, that sort of gallows humor or whatever, that darker comedy. And so it's always a great, so, you know, when you're playing a character who's in that world, I always find just being reminded of that level of humor and intelligence is always is a great, uh, you know, asset. But um uh but now so now uh the the place where our squad room was, down in Fells Point in Baltimore, do you know what it is now? No. It's this luxury hotel. Like the nicest ho- like luxury. One of the under armor guys, he owns it. And um uh so and it's amazing so the the Pendry and so I, I'm working, uh, a friend I made while I'm on homicide, we we're, were developing a show together. So I was down there a year ago and I brought my family down and he goes, I'm going to put you up because he was producing shows, I'm going to put you up at your old work. And so he got us a room at the Pendry and it was crazy. So there's my wife, I have my wife and my daughter there and I'm going, and I walk in where the ballroom is where someone's having a wedding rehearsal and I go, that's where my desk was. Oh, wow. And and then every morning we'd have breakfast, Uh, that they built a restaurant down below where they just used to park all the trucks and park our trailers so it was really surreal and uh, uh, it's great to. I'm I'm going to Baltimore often now because I'm working on this show with my friend and um, it's amazing how much of Baltimore has changed but how much hasn't you know because that's that was always what was so exciting was Baltimore has you know there's certain cities that have such a specific um, character and history and a vibe and then there's some cities that look like oh it looks like you know that looks like another city it could be you know but Baltimore is unmistakably Baltimore, you know, it's got just this energy and, and then an architecture. And I, I was always told it may be a myth, but, um, I, cause I lived down at Fells Point where we shot the, the show, which is old sort of, you know, waterfront type, uh, neighborhood, and the first townhouse, row house that I lived in there was built in the 1700s, and all of these places were from the 1700s and the 1800s, and the only reason they had them torn them down was because at the time, it was so economically depressed, no one wanted to develop it, right, and which is spectacular, so some sort of that misfortune led to all of this amazing architecture and these great buildings being preserved. Um, but it still has this, it's crazy. The culture is, uh, I was just down there two months ago, right before I had to come back for, to, for lockdown. And it's amazing how intact and how proud that culture is there. And the accent still is strong and there's still just as many bars per block. And, uh, and, uh so, uh, it, it but anyway, the, you're talking about The Wire. Yes, I would have loved to have been on The Wire. Um, but it's, it's definitely, it's my favorite, uh, favorite show of the last 20 years. Like a perfect, perfect. perfect. Yeah.
0: yeah, I used to go down work a lot for uh, games at uh, Camden Yards. We used to right. do a lot for M um, and just taking Amtrak down there, so you kind of see yeah. the wire in real life, pretty much yeah. all the advanced, like you know, projects and stuff like that, and end up in the waterfront, which was you know made up you know beautifully. Yeah, and just it, it, it's true. But um, the David Simon, like, because I know obviously the book is a lot different from the show because there's only so much you can do on TV
1: and opposed right. to the book. Was he was okay with the show? The, the he harmless. was part of the show. Yeah, yeah so he was – uh so I came on for their uh, – I came on season four, but the first season was six episodes. I think the second season was 12 episodes. The third season was their first full season, and then I came on right after all of that. And so I believe uh, in the first couple of seasons, they did a bunch of stories that were in the book. Mm-hmm. Adina Watson and all that stuff was – all that stuff was in the book. And then when I was there – he was a writer on the show. He wrote some of my favorite episodes. I mean, there were so many great – and he wrote the episode where I shot Luther Mahoney. Okay. And – because I remember I remember calling him because I because I remember – I. They, it was such a well-oiled machine, which is so different than TV now. You have your little mailbox in the office, and the day you started shooting an episode, in your mailbox would be the, the script for the next episode. Okay. And which is just – I don't know if other actors would talk about this, but nowadays in TV – i'll show up i'll show up at work and i'll get my pages that morning right there's a lot more last minute umness to it but the organization tom fontana was an amazing showrunner and a great writer and he brought in all these great writers and they just had it down. So it was really exciting. So I remember going to the office and I get the new script and I remember sitting on the steps in the office and I'm just reading through it. And, and I see, I see that I shoot it. I, and I can't believe that someone's written this. They've taken one of their, they've taken one of their lead characters and they've given him this gift of just being morally not, you know, it's not clear who he is. And I remember just, I go get on the little, I get on the phone, you know, the old regular phone and I, I call David Simon over and I go, David, Thanks, man. Thanks for, thanks for doing this for me. Now it it changed my whole trajectory on the show. And, uh, but it was such a gift and that, and they were so, they were bold and brave in that way. In, in, in a way now, you know, you would expect that on an Ozark or something like that. You know, now, I mean, certainly the paradigm has shifted, but in those days, in the mid nineties, very rarely, I mean, you know, Magnum killed somebody, right? Was it season three or season four? And I remember that being amazing, but it was very rare that you would place your lead characters and make them morally ambiguous and as an actor uh that's 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 all you want you don't want to you know you you want to have all of those colors and all of those layers and and that depth and and i was it was really exciting i mean it it made uh and i think they wrote them it made it complicated for them because they were like what do we do with him now?" And what, how do we, uh, forward the story? But it, it was, uh, yeah, so David, David was very, he wrote a lot of my favorite episodes. I'm trying to remember, I don't know if he wrote the Lunch Bandit one. Maybe he didn't write the Lunch Bandit one, but I feel like I remember having a conversation about one of those episodes in the, in the kitchen. But, uh, yeah, so I, I think he was down with it. And then he brought Clark on to direct the pilot for the Shield and I mean, not for the Shield, for the, he did direct the Shield pilot, but for the wire and, and he was there, and then ended up being an actor in the fifth season or the final season, right in the in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm so good yeah. to Montana's <laughs> uh, fellow Buffalo, Buffalo side. That's
1: guy. right, exactly. Right, yeah, of course. He, yeah, he did the commencement
0: speech when I graduated, so I was pretty excited for that. Oh, that's cool. Do you remember what he talked about? I don't, but um, because a lot of people like weren't. I wanna to say too excited, because I mean, you know, that at that point I think Oz didn't start yet. Didn't start right. yet. So like right. maybe the third third or fourth season of Homicide, I think that was when it was going on. And I don't think I, I don't remember what he talked about, but I don't think it was like the next year was ooh, my wife graduated, it was Avery Brooks. And it was like, Oh my god, because he had such a presence. And right. like mm-hmm. being a Star Trek fan as well, just like Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh my god, that was that was that was awesome. Because he, he just commanded college? Uh, and we got set up on a blind date, and um, it was she's a year younger than me, so I was a freshman at Buffalo right. State. She was uh, what's it called, a senior at Regal Park High School in, in Forest Hills, and we got set up on a blind date. I was going back to Buffalo the next day, right? And um, yeah, we went on a date, and she keeps joking because what was I? I was a broke 19-year-old going back to school had no money, so we, whatever. We, you know, we're driving around, went to Taco Bell for lunch, of all places, right? Right. right. After- and she always makes fun of me with this story. I happen to have a coupon in my wallet for, like, free, like, nachos, which, you know, I used. Right. And she always is like, you took me on our first date to talk about coupons. And I think you're still with me. Right. You know, I, I wasn't trying to impress you just being myself. Yet you're still here. Right. Three kids later. Right. A house later. So it, it was it, it was pretty funny. But, yeah, she ended up going to another school when she graduated. uh right. Regal Park. Or Parcels, I should say. And, uh, she transferred to Buff State. So we lived up there for a couple of years after graduating.
1: That's there. amazing. We made the move
0: to Connecticut. That's great. Yeah, it's, pretty you know, yeah. So we were together for, we married for 19 years. Yeah. And by together for over 25. So it's, I love that. Yeah. Love, that's great. Yeah. yeah so she always jokes about, you know, the whole Taco Bell, uh, you know. It worked uh, out. Yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, 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 forgot, I forgot what anniversary it was, but I got her flowers and it went to Taco Bell and I bought her nachos. And I left the the nachos next to the flowers on the table, so she she kind of got a kick out of that one. <laughs> you know.
1: that's really that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. So how did you meet your wife? We met on a movie in Canada in Winnipeg. Um, Winnipeg, 18, Winnipeg. Eighteen years ago. Yeah. <laughs> in the yeah in the winter. The winter uh, yeah. yeah. No, it was uh, it, it was funny because I always I always say when I first got up to Winnipeg, it was it was February. And 2002 and it was so cold, the rivers freeze, right? It's so cold up there. And every day, every day on the news, they would say, don't go outside. It's too dangerous to go outside. We'd shoot. And I go, oh, I thought I, I, I remember referring to this place as God forsaken, right? And then, and then my wife shows up. I, I remember meeting her the first day on set and I was it. And I knew yeah, and. Yeah. We fell in love up there, and then suddenly it went from godforsaken to we refer to it as the Paris of the prairies, and uh, we had the most romantic, I had this amazing room, we had the most romantic for sort of three weeks while we were shooting the film, Then we came back, I knew I was going to marry her right away, so we came back, I waited four months so people didn't think I was insane, and then we went back there to Winnipeg, got the same room, got engaged there four months later in July, and, uh, and then got married in Ireland uh, uh, about a year and a half later and uh been together ever since yeah so uh our romance began in canada um so it was good it was good uh it was a it was an okay movie it was one of those uh it was in my lifetime movie period where i would do like uh back in the day i would do i don't, I don't know what i was thinking but i would do one lifetime movie and it would they pay a lot of money Okay. and then okay. you could go travel for the rest of the year and i hadn't i'd i'd been so responsible i'd been so such a you know, I knew I wanted to be an actor in tenth grade, and that's all I focused on. And every summer, I was doing something acting-oriented, and and I was, uh, you know, I started doing commercials right away. I was doing summer stock, so I was never, I was a focused, focused guy. I went to Juilliard, and then I got out, and you know, worked on Broadway, and then moved to Los Angeles, and I was work, work, working. And I and I'd always wanted to travel more, so I had this like two-year period where I would do a Lifetime movie, or I guess I did maybe one for one of what are we, What is Lifetime? I did one for Hallmark or you know you do one for one of those channels, whatever it was. And then I go travel to Europe for the year, but then I met my wife, and then I go, Oh, I better start making some money again. So yeah, uh, better get back on a show. Right. Uh but uh yeah, so the Paris of the Prairies. I'm looking forward to going back out there, taking our daughter out there. that's great. Yeah. There's lots of places in Canada I want to explore. But I've shot I've shot up here so much. I mean sure, I think, sure. I've shot in more than half the provinces and okay. Nova Scotia and, and, uh, and obviously, obviously British Columbia and Alberta. And then I went with my wife. We shot up in Nunavut, which is up in, um, almost is the Canadian Arctic okay. and, uh, Quebec. So it's been, um, it's a, uh, I mean, I work here all the time and I, you know, we moved here. My family moved during the fall. I only came here back here basically for lockdown because I was back and I've been doing, um, uh, I was doing 13 reasons why I did last season. Okay that show. So I, as soon as we moved here, I said, I'm going to get a show, you know, I'm going to get a show in California for the rest of the year. And of course I did. So I was in, I was up in the Bay area while they were here. And, uh, and then I came back for lockdown, but I was here for two years on designated survivor just recently in Toronto. And then last year I was doing the terror out in Vancouver. So I think I've, uh, I've paid more in Canadian taxes than I have in us in the last seven years.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Right. Um, like Hopping on these shows like you know, a couple seasons in. Have you been fans of the shows that you like? You know, signed on to do. Like, can you, can you? I'm sorry, you broke up. Ask me that again. Sorry. Sure. Like you hopped on. Like, so you mentioned Thirteen Reasons Why. And yeah. I know like, uh, Disney Survivor was from the beginning, but let's like, say like 24, yeah. which like season eight you came on. But like, have you been fans of those shows
1: prior to signing on? It's a that's it's very interesting because sometimes, sometimes through. I remember I was, I was a fan of 24 and then you get to a point, where you go, well, why am I not on this show? Right. And so then you stop watching. And sometimes, sometimes if you really love a show, you can't watch it because you go, why am I not on it? But then sometimes you do, then you watch it, go, well, I'm going to be on this show eventually, right? I got to be on this show. I remember with Designated Survivor, I remember reading the log line, uh, of, of where everyone gets killed. At the State of the Union address, and then a person who's not qualified to become president becomes president. And I go. I remember before they even made it. I go. I want to be on that show. Right. And so I remember pestering my agent constantly. Is, is there something that I can do on this show? I want to be on the show. Because it just sounded like my politics, and I just, I just the premise of it was so exciting. Um, but I showed like 13 reasons why. Sometimes, no, I haven't seen it. But now the beauty of everything being of streaming. I remember when I was going to have the meeting on it, I, I I was able to watch the first season and I was blown away by how how good the acting was and how good the writing was. So that's always exciting, too, because you go, oh, then you get you you have a frame of reference and you can get super stoked to be on the show. Yeah. Or sometimes you can watch it and go, oh, maybe I don't want to take that meeting. But that's very rare. Very rare. There's yeah. a lot, you know, there's a lot of good television out there. There is. Yeah, there's is. a lot it's because. Rare. And when I first started, when I first started, the, the lines did not cross, right? Yeah. And so, you know, I'm going to Juilliard and i had done my first Broadway play and I was going to be in movies. I'd done Memphis Bell I heard, I listened to you, had D.B. on the other day, right? <laughs> and and I was like, I'm going to be in movies. And, and I remember my agent go, do you want to audition for TV? I'm like, no, I don't want to audition for TV. I want to be in the movies. Right. And then... And then I read. Then this, they started. They me these pilots, and I read. There were great shows. There were still great shows. And I go, wow, I, I'd like to do these shows, and I'd like to, and I'd like to go to work for nine months back in the day, especially for the network show. I, I, I really don't like sitting at home. You know, idle hands are not my best. It, right. it is the devil's playground, right? So, right. I, so I, the, suddenly the work uh, uh, ethic of it and the the time commitment was really exciting. So I started going out for pilots, and I remember I got a couple of really good pilots that didn't go. And back in the day, though, they used to make two-hour pilots, and so they really invested in it. And so – and then I remember, oh, so – well, here, this perfectly answers your question. So I'm doing a pilot for NBC called Boy Meets Girl. So I guess this is 1993, and as I'm sitting in my hotel room in Vancouver, I watched the first episode of Homicide on TV. And I'd gone to Juilliard with, with Andre and where he was he was three years ahead of me there. He was a senior when I was a freshman. And I remember watching that homicide show and going, I want to be on that show. Oh, I, I got to be on that show. And when I when I decided to not actually become a police officer, because I realized ah, I think you're an actor. You know, that's what your spirit is. That's your talent. Right, I go. Right. But my dream is to play a, a, a cop truthfully on, you know, on t- so that was my goal was to be on a realistic cop show and really get, you know, whatever to, to, to display, you know, portray that person's life authentically. And then that, I remember when, when that audition came, I remember them calling and saying, there's a, they're adding a new character to homicide. Uh, I'm going, Oh God, if they'll take a blonde blue eyed guy for this part, I'm going to get this. Yeah. Right. Cause back in the day, we Every, t- every time I'd audition for things, when I, when I finally started auditioning for television, they have these uh, – you know about the breakdowns where they describe the character? Yes. So yes, when, yes. when they do casting, they, they describe the character and they sort of say who they want. So everything I ever went up for was because he was the hottest thing at the time to go, we want a Johnny Depp type. Okay. right? So I remember early on, I'd say to my, I'd say to my agents, I go, please don't send me in for the first round of auditions because let them see all the Johnny Depp types. And then if they don't want the Johnny Depp type, then let me, let me come in near the end. Right. And, and that usually worked out for me after they'd seen all the Johnny Depp types and hadn't quite found the guy they wanted. Um, I get in, but I remember, I remember I to this day, I remember going to that, um, homicide audition and, and seeing all these actors who I knew and everyone wanted it. And we were in some trailer off of old Burbank NBC studios. Right. And then, and then I got to have the meeting with Fontana and Barry Levinson when when it went further. And, uh, and it, I, it couldn't have been, it was just, it was meant to be. I mean, and I, I was, I could not have been more excited about any gig, you know, getting it out of, out of the gate. And, and I think it was funny too, cause I think, we all, and I think we, we showed up with different ideas about why I was there. Cause I think at the time when they added me, yeah. I th- think in retrospect, they were going for like, they were going to like youth it up maybe or add a little, I don't know. I wouldn't say 90210 it up, right. but I think they had some ideas that I was going to be like more romantic, kissy face uh, dude. And I, and I, and they didn't know that I just, I had aspired, you know, I, I, this was my Serpico moment. You know, mm-hmm. I was, I wanted to have my Al Pacino playing a cop moment. So I brought all of this hiss I've been literally studying. I'd read every book there was to the, at that point on real life cop lives. And I I hung out with only cops. So I had this perspective on it, which, um, I think at first, when I sort of balked at some of the more, cause I remember they referred to me initially as, uh, his vision for the character was frat boy with a gun. And, uh, and, and that, that quickly went away. Sure. And then we found, and he ended up becoming, I mean, without question, the, the, my favorite character I've ever played because I so closely identified with him and it was painful. It was a painful time in my life to do it. It was um I remember when I knew I was going to do my last episode and handing in my gun and my badge for the last time and I I cried right because it was saying goodbye to that guy who I loved and uh but uh he it was it was an amazing journey because yes when I first came in I remember too the press destroyed me when I first showed up when I first showed up they were like who oh, is this guy ruining the show and I remember the Baltimore Sun The local paper drew a caricature of me that made me look like moose from Archie comics, right? I was just like, you know, this big, just thick-necked doofus. And then by the time I left, then the 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 son wrote this beautiful, like, two-page article saying goodbye to me and how the show wasn't going to be the same, right? You know, and and so it's you know, it's it's why it's good not to read your press. And not pay attention to what anyone thinks yeah. and just like go in and do your, do, do your job. And, um, and I've been lucky, you know, uh, uh it was a crazy time. And uh, have, have you had anyone else on from the show from Homicide? I've uh, I mean, not I, yet. No, 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 yeah, yeah. So it was, it was a truly chaotic, uh, uh, experience, right? There was, uh, there was a lot of, uh, it was the Wild West. I'll say that because we were in Baltimore. No one from NBC was ever going to show up. So right, right. there were there was a lot of now I say with great uh, romantic uh, hindsight, a lot. There was just a lot of very bad behavior. You know, there was a lot we just saw. We worked hard together and we played very, very hard together. And um everyone went, you know, people went through marriages and through, you know, substances and let uh, and and it all found its way into the scripts. So anything that you would reveal, cause we'd all hang out. We'd be drinking with Tom in the bar at four o'clock in the morning. And, and, and there was, we had our, we had where we shot, we had the pier and we'd go right across the street to Cooper's, which is our bar. We didn't actually drink at the waterfront, the one in the show, we drank next door at Cooper's. And I just saw Patrick who owns Cooper's the other day. We'd all drink there and then we'd all come back the next day. And so anything you'd revealed, it would find its way into the scripts. And, um, there might have been some, some, I don't know, some knife fights, some gunplay. Uh, but, uh, but now, you know, which is great. You know, you talk about reliving your youth and it's been a long time now. So anytime I think that's always the best thing. Like, you know, if you ran into someone from high school, right? Whatever petty grievances you had or whatever injuries you feel like it's something's changed and you have a perspective on it and it's all sort of, it has a romantic sort of sheen to it. And now, I mean, Clark and I stayed friends forever, but anytime I run into anyone from the show, it's always super exciting. And, and you remember the craziness, but, uh, uh, it's all, uh, it's all mellowed with time, like a, like a fine wine. Right. Right. And I that beauty of you that you don't have, you didn't have a smartphone back then to worry about, uh,
0: getting that fun and social media. Cause that probably would have been pretty bad. Well, I
1: mean, thank God. I mean, thank God. Thankfully we didn't have a smartphone for anything. know. Right? Can you imagine having one in college? Oh, God. no. Oh, it would be okay. ridiculous. Or I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine what you would have written on Twitter at four o'clock in the morning, several beers in? Like it would have been, no, no, your life would be over. You yeah, know, I go mean, to a job interview and, you know, seeing uh, like 20 tweets in front of you, <laughs> what you said. Oh, like, oh. no. I mean, that's, it seems to be as parents, that's probably one of the most valuable pieces of advice that we can pass on right now. It's like, do not, do not no. put anything into that world that you don't want to live with for the rest of your life. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Yeah. No, we had Polaroid cameras. That was bad enough. Yeah. No. In fact, now that you say that, that was Tom Fontana's gift to everyone. He always gave them Polaroid cameras. So maybe he, maybe he, yeah, see, it was, it was, it was, it was was to incriminate yourself.
0: Yeah, Yeah. right. (laughs) Right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there was evidence. (laughs)
0: Yeah, now you're home now. Obviously, flipping you flip through the channels. Yeah, One of the shows, movies comes on. Do you sit and watch it? Can you watch yourself?
1: Yeah, you know it's funny. My wife, who's a really, uh, really talent, is much more talented as an actor than I am. And uh, she started as a kid too. She started. I mean, I started as a late teens. She started even earlier teens. And she was saying to me, she, "Oh, she caught something she'd done, uh, Queer as fuck, And and she was watching it the other day because she they were doing a reunion on Zoom, and she goes, "Oh." I wasn't as bad as I thought I was. And I go, that's my experience because I very rarely, and I think this is probably true for most actors. Most of the time, every, everything I do to this day, often you're beating yourself up in the car. You, you're driving home or you're getting your hotel room that night. You're like, Oh, that's how I should have played the scene. I was terrible. You know, there's so much just just last self laceration. And every time I go back and something pops on, like I won't, I would, wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't seek myself out, but if it comes across, you go, you go, oh, oh, I was, why did I waste all those, why did I waste all those hours, or days, or months, kicking my own ass, I was great, or I was really good, or that was, you know, or, um, it, it's, uh, it's always that thing like, uh, you know, when you look back at pictures of, it's like anyone, anyway, if you look back at pictures of yourself, you know, you, you've, you probably had a very low opinion of yourself, and you look back, you go, I wasn't that ugly, what was, why, why did I like, why was I so mean to myself, So. Yeah, I mean, Homicide doesn't come on, right? Because no one screams, right? Yeah. But I even, if I come across, like, what did I come across? I come across some old Judging Amy the other day. <laughs> one of those ones where you're like, I wouldn't seek that out. I go, ah, not so bad. I mean, yeah. there's a few where I go, pretty bad. Yeah. Um I did this, because uh, I did this Hallmark movie with Jessica Lange right after I got out of Juilliard. And I'd... And I'd gone off to do Memphis Bell after my second year of Juilliard, and I made this move for four months, and then showed right back up at school. And I probably should have just never gone back to school, but but instead I go, I went back, and I go, hey man, I don't, I don't want them to think that I've gone Hollywood. I'm going to really throw myself into the program. Maybe I'll just, I hadn't, I never really aspired to become a Shakespearean actor, but I go, maybe I'm going to become a Shakespearean actor. So I really worked, and I worked on my voice, and I see this Hallmark movie that I did with Jessica Lange, and I was acting so much. And I, I had a voice that I spoke up here and I was like, what the hell was that? So there's every once in a while you go, all right, you know, uh, the way I always talk about it with, you know, when you're trying to talk to your kid about it, like, cause she wants to go in the family business. I go, there's things that I could have done better, but I always tried. I tried to do my best. Right. You know, there, I, right, I've, right. I've failed big like every once in a yeah, while. Yeah. Cause I remember like, um, well, on Homicide, Andre had this ability to be so larger than life, but it worked. And he finished, cause I remember I was in his Othello when he played Othello with Juilliard. And he would, on Homicide, he would finish every sentence and hit every, and I thought, oh man. I want to be more like Andre. So I remember trying to do an episode of Homicide where I used all of my Juilliard and it was ridiculous. It didn't work on me, right? That wasn't, that's not my, you know, that's the thing too. It's like finding what you do well and, yeah, yeah. and, 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 you know, doing it like Hercules. So, uh, uh, being a great, uh, Shakespearean actor was not necessarily my Hercules. Uh, but, uh, there you go. Right. And Andre you mentioned him. He was obviously the
0: man in presence on that show. And you look at, it, Brooklyn Nine Nine. Yeah. He's on that show. He's absolutely.
1: Yeah, no, he's brilliant. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's perfect. And yeah. that's always fun too when you can live long enough to do the, the, the spin on your most, you know, uh, iconic character. Right. Yeah, exactly. Now you mentioned before like network
0: shows, um, and it's hard now because the streaming and they get canceled so quickly. One, one of your shows I absolutely love was Journeyman. Yeah. And unfortunately, I mean that, you know, quick demise, unfortunately. Would that have been like a good
1: streaming show, you think? you think that would have had a longer life? That was – so, okay. So that was – as far as work and creativity, that was probably the greatest experience i would ever had, Journeyman. Right. So it was – it was the first time I worked with – the creator was Kevin Falls, who I've done a bunch of shows with, did Franklin and Bash with. And he is one of the, the greatest um, human beings I've ever had the pleasure to work for. But – So let me – I'll give you – I'll go back to Homicide and I'll tell you the story in this way. So when I did Homicide, it was without question the most dysfunctional set I've ever been on, right? And there was acrimony and tension and it was fomented, right? It was encouraged. So – and and I remember – I think Tom must have even said it, that they there was this sense that if people were on edge and not getting along and there was all this drama that it would translate to the screen. So, I mean, actors would disappear for for long periods of time Mm -hmm. that people would storm off to their sets. Shit that went down. There was one actor who had a Nation of Islam bodyguard who would check his trailer for bombs. Right. It was bananas. Bananas. And but at the end of the day, when you watch the show every Friday at ten, it all came together. It was amazing. So I remember um, after the show was done, I didn't want to do a series for a while. And Clark called me to come do the pilot for The Shield. And I said, "Great, I, I, I want to." That's great. I'll just do the pilot. He goes, "Great, we're going to f- fake them out. They're going to think you're a series regular. they you're going to die." Spoiler. Um, and it's the point. Of the show. And I, and I remember, so I show up and I go, "Great," because that's all I want to do. And everyone was so nice. All those guys, Chickliss, all those guys are so nice. And they're all getting along great. And I'm going, this show's going to fail. Because I thought, like, oh, I thought it had to be acrimonious. And then I remember seeing it all come together. And I go, oh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I've learned a horrible lesson. Maybe it can all get a, be great. Maybe you could all get along and still make a really intense, amazing show. So that was a huge sea change for me. And then cut two years later. So, uh, I'm on Journeyman, and that was one of those shows where it was, there wasn't one asshole in the bunch. Like, not, not, no, no, not the, not anyone, not the guy, you know, not, not one driver, not one, you know, painter, no one. Everyone was amazing. And, and I wanted to play, this was another one of those that I'd waited for. I was a huge fan of Rome. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Rome on HBO. So Kevin McKidd was the star of that. And I remember my wife and I would watch that every week that it was on on HBO. And she goes, "You guys got to play brothers. You guys look like brothers." And I go, "I don't know, yeah." And I remember it's pilot season, and my agent calls me. He goes, "I got a meeting for you tomorrow. It's to play Kevin McKid's brother." And I'm like, oh, I "Guess I'm getting that one." And I went in and I met Kevin Falls, and we walked in, in the room, and 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 we it was love at first sight. And that was it. Like I, it, and that show, that show was magical, and we really. That was one of those where, well, the writer's strike happened while we were finishing it. Now, Kevin, talked about organized writers. He'd actually written, we had gotten a 13 episode order and he'd written every single episode. So they were in the can. So when the writers were, had to put down their pens because they, WGA went on strike, we still were able to finish our initial order, but we knew the writing was on the wall because NBC didn't own the show. So we kind of had a feel, we were on the bubble. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, uh we knew and I remember our last night of shooting, we filled a trailer with booze. And in between scenes, we just all go back there and have a cocktail and kiss and hug and reminisce, you know, about our tenure together. And we just stayed there all night on the Fox lot till dawn, just just drinking, hugging, because we knew it was probably the end. But um that was one, that was a perfect experience. And everyone feels that way. It's funny every year. Right. When the show premiered, uh, you know, Kevin Falls and I, I mean, we see each other a lot, but we call each other like, oh, man, it would have been 13 years. We would run the air. Because That was one of those shows we wanted to go for seven because oh, you work, would have you loved. It was one of those where you just love being at work every day and you loved all those people. So that was that was. But that's it's great. It's great to have those experiences. And certainly since that learning experience that I had on The Shield, I've had only pretty much only uh, positive Work experiences, and, and now I know that the best creativity, you know, happens in uh, those kinds of environments. But uh, right now,
0: you said the show wasn't owned by NBC. Now, how did, how did you think you would have had a better chance of lasting?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was a that was a you know, because often when they're making network shows or any show, right? There's a studio and there's a network. Yeah. Now sometimes they're aligned, sometimes they're the same. You know, the studio is the network, and they're they're together but in that case Fox was the studio and NBC was the network and they had two shows on the bubble and one of them they owned and one of them they didn't and I didn't understand all of that at the time now it's certainly something I think about um when you when you look at a show not that you not that you have that much control over what show you get on uh but it's just definitely definitely something to think about in the future I mean but that show unfortunately I think I know it, I know they released the DVDs in the UK and, um, someone I have a, someone contacted me from New Zealand, but here they didn't because they couldn't pay for all the music again, right? That's why it doesn't stream. And that's not even on DVD because the music was so key, but I love that show and I love all those people. And, and definitely, I mean, I've, I've gone on to do three other shows with Kevin Falls, yeah. who's basically, he's my fairy godfather in the business for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Now, like with network shows, it's hard now, I would find, because you have all the big stars with gold, you know, streaming or because they have a limited series. Right. You know, they'll sign up, no one's signing up for a seven year, you know, network show, unfortunately, right. anymore. But you, you did a limited series on Fox, Wayward Pines, which right. blew my mind. Yeah, it was yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And you mentioned the cast, you know, the cast they had on that was great. Amazing, yeah. Probably wouldn't have signed on had it been like a you know, regular network, uh, you
1: know, run show. Well, that but Wayward Pines, I saw that because I love that. I read, I read his book. Well, read, right. Yeah. And I, I read, I, I got the, I got the meeting and I go, well, I don't really understand what's going on. I need to understand what's going on. So I grabbed Blake's book and now in this modern age, uh, I can just, I could download it instantly. I read it in three hours. I read it in one sitting and I was so blown away. So I didn't even really give a shit who was involved with it at the time. Right. Ironically, um, one of my homicide castmates was in there. Yeah. Um, and it was a crazy chaotic, uh, it was, it was the only recent ca- crazy chaotic, uh, show I've ever been on in, 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 in recent years. Uh, uh, but I could tell you some of those stories, but, uh, no, I wanted, I wanted to be on there for Blake's book because I thought the book was yeah. perfect. Right. And, uh, we ended up making a very different show, but all, all I'll say about that one is if you notice at the end of the first season, all of the cast was killed. Yeah. Um, so. You could, you know, you, you could do the math there. Um, uh, but, uh, yes. Yeah, so, but the, the, that's been an interesting thing now with the limited series. I mean, obviously what's exciting about it is creatively there's so much great writing. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, artistic, artistically, it's an amazing time. Financially, it's more complicated because in the old days, you would get a show and you'd shoot for nine months and you have three months off now. You, and the, and cause the shows own you basically, right? And they can tell you what you can and can't do in your time off. But that made sense when you had three months off, but now you shoot for three months and you can go a year between seasons. So it's been now for actors like me, people go, Hey, Oh wow. You're working all the time. And I go, I have to, I have to have, Two shows going or I have to move on to this next show because to to fill out my year in a way, um, because certainly the streaming has been uh, well to, to our larger political conversation, the middle class actors done. Right. When I started, when I in the 90s, the middle class actor was alive and well. You could be somebody like me where you go. I, I, I know that guy. I know him. I know his face. I may not know his name. And there's so many of those actors out there. And you can people who work on all the time and they make a decent, they make a good living, right? They make all that you would possibly need. Um, and then that really changed. So then it became uh, bigger stars taking nice, nice big chunks. And then the rest of the people are sort of, you know, scale, take it or leave it. So it's been an interesting time in that way. Um, not to say that it's, it's still, you know, we're, we're well paid, uh, but it's been, there's a lot more hustle. And you know, certainly, in the last few years, I've seen a lot of people get out of the business, and and I'm sure there'll be another calling now, right? right so right. it's it's hard to say. I mean, I, I'm I, I'm intrigued to see what it looks like when we all come back, and what and also what we want to be entertained by.
0: Yeah, yeah. And just a guideline how you guys are coming
1: back, like what you <laughs> did, and,
0: and do. And it's
1: going to be interesting to see. No love scenes. Yeah, that's for right. sure. <laughs> no, I don't know. No, no they, they figured it out. They'll, you know, we'll, it's gonna, we you know, we'll get our tests and we'll all come back and, uh, hopefully, hopefully you can have antibodies for this and, and then we don't know, right? Right. We don't know. Yeah, I know.
0: Exactly. I know I took up a lot of your time today, but I got one more no, no, question. No, it's, it's a pleasure talking to you. This is, this is great. Um, 24, which I mentioned before. My all, my all time. Yeah. Show, uh, your character, which is it's kind of interesting because you came on as like, it was Logan's chief of staff and then you temporarily, uh, CTU head, which I think is probably that job has no job security and anyone can really have that. It's like, you know, right. Trump's press secretary or whatever. Member of the exactly. cabinet. Yeah. Um, you had a pretty gruesome scene with, with Kiefer when he basically, you know, pulled uh Tyson on you. Um, yeah. how uh, how was shooting that scene like? Well,
1: 24, you know, it's funny, 24, as we said, for years, I remember going, They had their their offices were way up in Chatsworth, where their okay. studios were. Now, Chatsworth, you probably, I, I don't know how familiar you are with Los Angeles, but it's the upper northwest corner of the San Fernando Valley. Right. And Chatsworth is known for two things, right? It's where Roy Rogers had his studio, because all those round rocks, and it's the, it was the epicenter of the porn industry. Okay. Right. And so Chasmers. So Chasmers is always a good improv um, punchline. But you would have these meetings. You'd go out there and, and I'd go out there for a few years and to play whatever bad guy or whoever it was they were going to add. And then it didn't happen. And I remember my last one, it was at eighth season. I went on the beginning of the season and I met with them for somebody who was going to be the bad guy of the year. And uh but what I didn't realize, which you would think in a show called Twenty-Four where they do they have twenty-four episodes, they would have the whole season planned out. They didn't, right? Yes. That's always the beauty of TV. Yeah. So they got to a certain point in their season and they 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 that storyline had gone kaput. It was done, right? So they bring me on and and which was great. I was really happy to call me up. They're like, Do you want to do the show? I go, Yeah, of course. I want to do the show for a long time. It's great. So I come. And, and, and Greg, it's you know, amazing, you know, uh, and so, it was, and I got to work with him and Cherry for the first, I didn't even see Kiefer until my last two episodes, I don't think. Yeah. And, and so I had an amazing experience there. And then basically what it ended up happening is they'd already, their, their bad guy played out. So then I got, my part just got better and better every week, which is always, I can't tell you how many shows I've come on to do one episode and then end up staying for three years. And that's a doesn't I, I came on to do one or two. And then they're like, hey, you know, we like this character. He's really interesting. Let's uh let's let's keep it going. And then it ends up being because the beauty of network television is very often they don't have a plan. Right. They have a certain plan, but then. That storyline peaks much sooner than they thought. So they're like, well, what are we gonna do now? And so it's fun to take advantage of that. So um, but the, with Kiefer, so now I've done two shows with Kiefer, and uh he's uh he's he's the well it's funny. Okay. Kiefer and I worked at Williams, we were apprentices at uh at Summerstock together when we were 16. Wow. And and I've seen him over the years a couple of times. And uh but then we do 24. And, you know, that guy, he's I've never worked with anyone more intense, but smarter. And uh, I was nervous about the ear scene because I'd done a scene in the early 2000s. I did a vampire movie in Hungary. And in this in the scene, the vampire had to rip my throat out. So they put a prosthetic onto my throat and with blood coming out of it, blah, blah, blah. blah. And they had a Hungarian actor playing the vampire who was going to rip my throat out. Well, as we're going there, you know, we're, it's it's not the highest budget of movies. And I go, you know, I could feel the director was all revved It's like, let's go, let's go. We're going to do it. We're going to get it quick. We're going to get out of here. And I could feel that the guy was rushed. I said, hey, you know what we should do? Let's start him with his mouth already on the prosthetic. And then when you call action, he can just rip away, right, so that we don't have to worry about him. And the director's like, no, 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 I want him to go in. So I was calling, I want him to go in and then pull it out. And I'm like, okay, I just don't have a good feeling about this. Well, that motherfucker goes in and he bites all the way through that prosthetic right into my real throat. And I go, I'm not doing this again. So I just let him go. And I'm just like, um, I go, because we're only going to do this once. And he pulls it off, and he, you know, he ripped a chunk out of my real neck. And they're like, oh. they go, like, oh, that was amazing. You you stayed in it, you committed to it. I go, like, well, I'm not doing it again, right? And I just, you know, I, I said, does he have any diseases? And they're like, oh, very funny. But um, but so when we did the scene with Kiefer, I was nervous because I thought this guy's really intense, right? And he's gonna, he he maybe. I don't know him that well yet, I, had, as I, had, I hadn't worked with him until then. I go, maybe he's going to get lost in the moment. But then Kiefer, being the consummate professional, he goes, "I'm going to start on the ear, and on action, I'll pull away." Right on the fake ear. Yeah, <laughs> professional. So, uh so he was a joy. And then he and I, you know, on designated, I, um, I love work. I mean, he's, uh, I love working with him, you know. But he's a, he's an intense character, and he doesn't suffer any fools, and he doesn't suffer any bad behavior and um I think I could say this as politically as possible, but there are some actors, and I've been very fortunate, especially with these young kids, and i come like 13 reasons why, like kids, there's, there's a great new generation of actors. People come super prepared. But sometimes on TV, you'll find that people like, People aren't really prepared. They haven't learned their lines. Well, when you work with Keeper, you better know your lines. You better be ready to go, or he will he will make you wish that you'd prepared more. So I'm always super prepared, and I like to act as well. of my favorite thing to do, and uh, so we get along great. And he's a, he's a, he's a cool cat, and I look forward to doing you know another show with him at some point down the line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um,
0: Survivor. Well, the, premise the, premise. Yeah, the
1: premise was great. Premise was great.
0: A little formulated, formulated towards, you know, probably, yeah, probably. halfway the first season. So they kind of abandoned, like, the premise of it. And, you know, but, I mean, he's great. He, you know, commands, you know, the, the cast was great. But it, at that point, it's like you kind of have to go then the story of the
1: week, which, unfortunately, it kind of moved towards that. that is the, That is the problem. And that's – I remember – well, I remember him saying, "Oh, I want it to be the West Wing." And I go, "Well, you don't have Aaron Sorkin." So it's going to be complicated to make this into the West Wing. Um and I thought the premise was was brilliant. But that's always that, you know, and that tends to be the that tends to be the complicated thing with uh with network television is that they want it they want them to be able to be standalone episodes and not necessarily have overarching storylines. So you need to have something you can solve that week, which I which obviously I guess is satisfying for some people, but it's it's not what obviously you or I are, are looking for in a show when we're watching a show. You want you want storylines, you want arcs, you want you want you have people to live their lives. Right. I remember when we, well, like Franklin and Bash. We do Franklin and Bash. We do we do the pilot for uh, TBS at the time TBS was producing it, and then TNT wanted it. You know, there's brother yeah. sister stations, right? And then but TNT's we were. It was a comedy, and it wasn't. It, it was not broad, but it was based. You know, it was broadish. Yeah. And TNT is like, we're going to air the show, and then TNT goes, and TNT's tagline at the time is TNT. We know drama, right? And and they go, you're a drama. I go, we're not. They go, no, you're a drama that's funny. We're not. <laughs> and so then they. I remember they really early on. They insisted on that the crime of the week was – or the case of the week was sort of tantamount. And then we didn't have too many overarching storylines so they could air the episodes in whatever order they wanted. And it kind of made a mess of things for a while Uh because what was exciting about that show and why I loved it was it wasn't I – didn't, I didn't really care about the case of the week. I cared about, like – who, you know, why, that, 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 you know, Mark Paul was in love with the DA and he couldn't function in front of her. Like, I liked all those character things and that's what was exciting about the show. Right. And it was all just the character stuff. I remember, you know, so, uh, luckily by the fourth season, we knew we were going to get canceled. It was going to be our last season. They left us alone and we got to make, I always, I always, my dream was that we went from the pilot to the fourth season because it was kind of, the fourth season was absolutely perfect. No one, no one interfered and we could just get back to the magic. But, uh, it's, but, you know the 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 way I look at it, you know, you can be on your Netflix show and you make ten episodes and you may not get rich at it, but you know you you can be proud of it. Or you know, there's certain shows where you're going to make a lot of money, but you might not want anyone to see it. Right. 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 No, yeah.
0: It's, it's 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 a tough uh, problem there. I always
1: there's, there's there's two types of roles the way I look at it. They go there's the ones you, there's the ones where you, I go I hope I can make this good. Yeah. And then there's the ones where you go, I hope I'm good enough. And so, but you need a balance of both and you never know, you know, because that's the thing too, there's, they always used to say, you know, your only power is saying no, but I've always found, I've had much better life and much better experiences in in this career by just saying yes. So I always, when they call and like, Hey, do you want to come do the show? Absolutely. And then, and I've had many more, a million more pleasant surprises and, um, and relationships and friendships and uh and great creative experiences from just showing up but reed i this was fantastic i really appreciate your oh time oh my gosh today. Oh, but i i've loved talking to you and i've really enjoyed listening to the show yeah. and I appreciate it yeah, this was yeah. fantastic
0: and a special thanks to reed for joining me today that was a great interview. If you want to follow him on Twitter, he's at Reed Diamond. And if you have a guest suggestion, you can hit me up on Twitter at the TheFirstNoel19. And like the page, Living My Youth, on Facebook. You can go to iTunes, check out all the past episodes we've had. While you're there, please rate and review the show. If you don't have iTunes, it's not a problem. Go to SoundCloud, go to Podbean. and go to livingmyyouth.threadless.com for all your merchandise. Father's Day is coming T-shirts, foam cases, hoodies, and great presents. A new episode comes out every week. Stay safe, everybody. We'll see you next week.